0: 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul is winding down his letter to the Corinthians. And as we saw last Sunday, he deals with an issue that they had raised in their letter to him. The collection for God's people. Apparently something they didn't want to do or something they felt they didn't have to do. And we saw this in two things. First of all, it is one of the now about matters. And the rest are hostile and antagonistic. Uh, in tone so i'd say they're not happy about this but also they refer to it as the collection whereas paul calls it your gift in verse number 3 and in other letters he has referred to this as fellowship service grace blessing and divine service the question came up after the sermon last sunday which i thought i had addressed but perhaps not clearly enough the issue is not generosity as such. When Paul deals with this matter again, in Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, um, we hear him speaking in terms of generosity. Let me just read you some of the verses. He starts out, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God had given the, has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Then in chapter nine, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then one last, also in chapter nine, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession, of the gospel of Christ, for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. But here the issue is not generosity. It is quite different. It is the question of unity among God's people. And that is quite apart from public worship. This is not something that's to be done with other Christians around. The Corinthians were supposed to set aside some money every Sunday, which would be collected when Paul came to Corinth. And that setting A side of money, in part, was to be a reminder that they were members of something much, much larger, that they had brothers and sisters in Palestine that they had never met, but with whom they had a connection. It is a connection, apparently, that the Corinthians are more than willing uh, to ignore. Paul, throughout this letter, has emphasized the organic unity of the Church. We are the body of Christ. This is a unity they have ignored at the local level. I mean, with people they see every Sunday. We shouldn't be surprised that they want to ignore it, if you wish, on an international level, and to send money to Jerusalem. As Paul continues here in this final chapter, he tells of his plans, his travel plans, those of himself, of Timothy, and that of Apollos, which is what we will look at today. Let's read, first of all, verses 5 through 12. Here in 1 Corinthians 16. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while, or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened for, to me, And there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has The opportunity. Earlier in this letter, in a particularly heated section of the letter in chapter 4, which Paul is dealing with the issue of his authority, which apparently the Corinthians no longer are accepting, he tells the Corinthians that he was planning to visit them soon. I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. And then he asks, quite dramatically. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and a gentle spirit? First, he would be sending Timothy, however. I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In the passage we looked at last Sunday, uh, Paul tells him that he is indeed coming to Corinth on his way to Jerusalem. Now, beginning in verse number five, we get the details of Paul's uh, itinerary. The information is straightforward. Paul is in Ephesus when he writes this letter. He's planning to stay there until Pentecost, which means he's probably writing this letter in the early spring, perhaps March. uh, And... Instead of going, which you could catch a boat and go straight from Ephesus to Corinth, which would be the shortest route, he's going to go across over to Macedonia, the province north of Achaia, where Corinth is, and then work his way down through Macedonia and then come to Corinth and spend the winter with them in Corinth. There seems to be no hint of any tension here, uh, but he is concerned how they will receive Timothy, and that, I think, sort of lets us know that everything isn't well between Paul and the Corinthians. So let's look at his itinerary. We can reconstruct it, the, the traveling that he planned to do that year. First, he planned to go through Macedonia through, from Ephesus. And we know from Acts that the churches in Macedonia included Philippi, the Philippians, Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, Berea, the Bereans. There must have been other churches as well, but these are the three that are mentioned in the book of Acts. These churches seem to have continued in the faith, from what we gather from the letter to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians. But Paul hasn't seen them in a while, and he wants to to visit them and to encourage them in the faith. And so he will go through, he will pass through Macedonia on his way to Corinth. I don't think he intended overnight stays, but to spend some time between Pentecost and winter. Pentecost comes usually around May. So he would spend probably, by our calendar, June, July, August, perhaps September, even October, with these people. And then he would come to Corinth, and he would spend the winter in Corinth. Well, that'd be something to look forward to, wouldn't it? <laughs> After all the writing that has happened between the Corinthians and Paul, uh, boy, can you imagine having Paul hang around town for an entire season? Well, that's what Paul is planning to do. It also has a practical side, by the way, and that is that there was very little or no traveling whatsoever done on the Mediterranean during winter. It wasn't safe. It was a time of storms. So Paul will stay there, he will winter there, and then when the weather uh, gets better, he will leave. He will go wherever. Um, I do want you to notice something here in verse number 6. Paul does not say, I will stay with you a while, but rather perhaps I will stay with you a while. There there is uncertainty, but I think there is also hope that that there will be a reconciliation between Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, I think that Paul was hopeful. I don't think I'm reading too much into this, that, that things would that the Corinthians would come to their senses, they would come to see the errors of their way, and that they would once again embrace him as the apostle who brought them the gospel the first time. And then he says, then I'll go wherever. And and in this, Paul sort of throws us at least a curve or two. Uh, It appears, first of all, that Paul's not quite clear where he's going after Corinth. Um, Some might say it's no big deal, that Paul doesn't know, but I just think it's worth noting that that Paul had plans. He was going to go over to Macedonia, come down to Corinth for winter, but from there, from there on he wasn't quite clear as to what he would do. The second thing, though, is, is really quite intriguing. He says that he wants to spend the winter with him so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. The verb in Greek, help me on my journey, is a technical one, and it means to provide a person with food, money, and traveling companions so as to ensure a safe arrival at a person's destination. From what we know of the early church, this was a key component of Christian hospitality. That not merely did someone come and spend the night at your house, but that you would provide them with food, with money to help them on their journey, and perhaps even send somebody to the next town with them just to make sure that they got the right direction and and would get to where they were going safely. It sounds wonderful. It sounds, for lack of a better way to put it, very Christian. But if you've been with us in our study, chapter 9 is all about the fact that Paul refused to accept money from the Corinthians. He makes a strong case that he had a right to expect material support for them from them, but he then explains why he did not accept it. And apparently this is a big issue. It comes up again in the second letter, uh, in chapter 12, at the end of uh, the letter. Um, Paul says, how were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. In other words, I never asked for financial, you never gave me any financial help, and and I'm sorry that I did that. But in other words, you're not any different than the other churches. Here, however, Paul is asking for their material support, that they would help him on his journey wherever it was that he would go. The fact that he offers them the opportunity to help him on his journey, um, I think, shows that Well, that an accommodation is being reached, that Paul understands uh, the discomfort that they feel and that he is willing to accept something from them. In the meantime, Paul is going to remain in Ephesus, at least until Pentecost. Pentecost was originally a Jewish feast day. It is the culmination of the Feast of Weeks. We read about in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It included the offering of two loaves of unleavened bread, which were to be the products of the first harvest. Um, It comes seven weeks after the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's after the Babylonian exile that it becomes a major feast in the sense of pilgrimage. That is, if you were a Jew and you lived in the Diaspora, you say, well, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. And what would you do that for? It would either be for Passover, it would be for Pentecost, Or it might be for the Feast of Tabernacles uh, later on in the year. That, by the way, is why on the day of Pentecost, as we know it, and many people see it as the beginning of the church, Jerusalem was filled with Jews from all over the Mediterranean basin. And Peter and the apostles get up and preach that Jesus is the Christ. And on that day, 3,000 people are converted and come to Christ. But Paul's going to hang out in, in, in Ephesus at least until May, the end of May, Pentecost. And, and why is that? Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. For some, this creates real questions, particularly about the nature of the open door, the open door for ministry. If God has opened the door for Paul to have an effective work, effective ministry, doesn't that imply that things will go smoothly and without a hitch? Well, stop and think a minute. If somebody comes up to you and says, The Lord has provided a wonderful opportunity for me, but there are going to be a lot of problems. We might say, or at least think, I'm not so sure are you sure that this is something that the Lord has provided? And I'm not so sure I'd call it a wonderful opportunity. See, I think that we imagine that if something is of God, that things will just happen automatically with minimal amount of effort on our part. That if God has opened a door for us, then we will just sort of waltz our way in, just sort of cruise in without much effort on our part. And then we can say, ah, I know this is of God. God has blessed me because, you know, I didn't really do anything and and everything just sort of worked out. I suspect that that is the way we view the open door of opportunity. Paul had a much different view in that he believes it is a great opportunity and he knows that there will be great opposition. And if you think about it, this is Paul's ministry in microcosm. Wherever Paul went, he had great freedom to preach. And then he had great opposition. It seemed inevitable that Paul ended up in jail or getting arrested or getting thrown out of town, on several occasions even being left for dead. I think we would say to Paul, Brother Paul, we need to rethink your philosophy of ministry. Why is it that you seem to have problems wherever you go? Either you're just an obnoxious jerk and you need to sort of work on your person skills or God may not be leading you to do these things. Maybe this is just your own selfish ambition. You want to go to the Gentiles and not the Jews. And, and maybe that's why you're having all of these problems. Paul would say no. I'm staying on until Pentecost because a great door For effective work has opened to me, and I know that there will be many people who oppose me. See, I think we should understand that difficulties and opposition should not be taken as indicators that we are doing the wrong thing, or that we're not in the Lord's will, God's perfect will for my life. No. On the other hand, we should be careful that we don't go in the other direction and assume that difficulties mean we are doing the right thing. Our circumstances do not dictate the rightness or the wrongness of our actions. We need to make sure that what we are doing is right by God's standard, by God's word. And Paul was excited. You know, I think if I were Paul, I'm ready to get out of Ephesus because... The opposition is there. Let's go let's go meet let's go meet with the brothers and sisters, people who like me. You know, why should I stay here and face opposition? Well for Paul the two went hand in hand. See, stop and think a minute. If if you ever say to someone or someone says to you, The Lord is blessing me, don't isn't implied in there that I'm not having a lot of difficulties? Things are going smoothly? I think Paul would say, I don't know what you're talking about. God is blessing me tremendously in Ephesus, and these people want to kill me. Um, it's great opposition. Um, in chapter 15, he talks about facing fierce, wild animals every day. He was in fear for his life every day. What a wonderful opportunity. Paul? Don't you understand God's blessing? See, for us, blessing means the hassle-free life. And in that, we are wrong. Now Paul turns from his own plans to talk about Timothy a bit. One thing that throws us at the beginning of verse number 10 is the word if. If Timothy comes, which indicates that it's not clear whether or not Timothy will go. Um, that's not what Paul is saying. I think a better way to put it would be whenever Timothy gets there. There's an uncertainty about when he will get there. I mean, they didn't have public transportation. They didn't have schedules. Uh, If you traveled by ship, you were sort of at at the whim of nature as to when you would get there. So Paul is saying, when he gets there, I'm really concerned about how you will receive him. He's already told the Corinthians, Timothy, my son whom I love. Um, Now, Now we know that something's going on, because why would he be concerned about Timothy's reception? Well, because the Corinthians aren't happy with Paul. And Paul sends his delegate, Timothy, whom he loves, someone he considers to be his son in the faith. He is concerned how they will receive him. I think the tension is here. And by the way... um, I think it's been throughout chapter 16. If you don't read the previous 15 chapters, I think that you will miss it. I mean, why is he concerned about how they will receive him unless he knows that there's strong sentiment against him, even hostility, and that such feelings might overflow to poor Timothy? Remember, Paul said in chapter 4 that he was sending him to remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. The <laughs> last thing the Corinthians want to be reminded of is anything having to do with Paul. And yet, that's precisely why Timothy is coming. So it's not bad enough that they get this letter from Paul. Now they get Timothy. Paul says, See to it that he has nothing to fear from you while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. In practical terms, no one should refuse him. That is, no one should treat him with contempt. No, I don't want you to come into my house. Send him on his way in peace. That is, to provide him with what Paul wanted to be provided with, with food, money, even companions, so that Timothy could come back safely to Paul. Paul would be waiting for his return. And then verse number 12, travel plans of Apollos. Here we come to the last, the final now about. Did you see that there? Now about our brother Apollos. So this is something else, apparently, that the Corinthians had written in their letter. They had mentioned in their letter to Paul. They want Apollos to return to them and to minister to them. For those of you not familiar with Apollos, let me give you some background. He was a Jew of the Diaspora. That is, he was from Alexandria in Egypt. We are told in Acts 18 he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He, he moved, or he traveled to Ephesus, and in the synagogue there, he began to preach boldly that Jesus was the Christ. But apparently, because of the time lag, the only baptism he knew was the baptism of John the Baptist, that is, the baptism for repentance. He didn't know about the baptism that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. That is, that you repent and are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is a sign of identification, you are now a part of the body of Christ. So Priscilla and Aquila, wife and husband, whom Paul had met in Corinth, they had since traveled to Ephesus, they say, come have lunch with us. And they take him home and they explain to him, beyond what he knew, because his knowledge sort of got cut off, he knew that Jesus was the Christ, but he didn't know about the baptism of Jesus. And they explained to him. At some point in that, he decides he wants to go to Achaia, where Corinth is. And the brothers in Ephesus give him letters of recommendation, letters of introduction. And he is very effective in Achaia. And we would assume that includes Corinth. We read in Acts 18, on arriving, he was a great help to those who, who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving the scriptures or proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And no doubt this contributed to what we saw in chapter one. People say, I belong to Apollos. I'm, I'm a disciple of Apollos. And that's part of what led to what Paul wrote uh, in chapter three about the role of Paul, Apollos and other apostles. Let me read to you from chapter 3. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. But apparently Apollos is a favorite of many in the Corinthian congregation. They don't like Paul. They like Apollos. And so now in their letter to Paul, in which they say, Paul, we've come to different conclusions of what you taught us. They're like, oh, and by the way, could you ask Apollos to come back? Talk about nerve of all the gall. Paul, we don't like your style of preaching. We don't like your teaching. We don't think you're particularly spiritual. But we do like Apollos. We really like Apollos. And, and could you tell him so he could come over and preach to us? It is remarkable the nerve of these Corinthians. But equally remarkable, or more so, is that Paul complies with the request. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go with to you with the brothers. And these are probably the three men that are mentioned later in verse number 17, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They had brought the letter from Corinth. They are now taking Paul's response. And Paul tells Apollos, come on, you should go with these three guys. You have traveling companions. You can go over to the church in Corinth. Paul wanted what was best for the congregation in Corinth. If they wanted to listen to Paul, I mean to Apollos and not Paul, Apollos, our brother, then, yes, if that would help them in their growth in the Christian faith, by all means, Paul strongly urged him to go. Paul doesn't blame him for the problems in Corinth. Paul could confidently send this man because he knew that what he preached is what Apollos preached, is what the apostles preached, which is what was preached in every church except Corinth. The Corinthians were the exception, not the rule. And so Paul's like, yes, by all means, Apollos, go over to Corinth and preach to these people. Well, perhaps just as remarkable, Apollos refuses to go. Paul says he was quite unwilling to go now. Again, if you've been with us through our study of 1 Corinthians, uh, based on what you know about the Corinthians, would you want to go to Corinth? Would you want to go and hang out with these people and preach to them every Sunday? I don't blame Apollos for not wanting to go. But I think there's something else. Apollos stands with Paul. He will not be part of this. Oh, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Peter. He will have none of that. He stands by Paul and he rejects this factionalism that has developed in the Corinthian church. He and Paul are co-workers. As I mentioned last Sunday, in coming to the, this last chapter of 1 Corinthians, depending on our temperament, uh, we may have high or low expectations. And I think many people may even see chapter 16 as a throwaway that all the doctrine is in the first 15 chapters, and the last one is just sort of housekeeping, oh, by the way, you know, those types of things. Um, but I almost, I almost feel like we may never get out of 1 Corinthians because chapter 16 has so much in it. We saw last week uh, how Paul talks about uh, the sense of unity through the collection or the gift for those in need. Even here today, as Paul explains his itinerary, I, there's so much. There's just two things I would point out for you to, to consider. First of all, Paul's view of opportunity and opposition. The difficulty does not negate, negate the, the reality of opportunity. Open doors do not mean easy days. We should not think that ease is a sign of God's blessing. And difficulties, neither should they be taken as, I must be doing something wrong. I I must not be in God's will. I I must have made the wrong choice. That's why I'm facing these difficulties. (coughs) Difficulties are not to be the basis of our judgment as to whether or not we're doing something right or wrong. Simply or not. And we need to be careful, not only in our own lives, but as we, as we look at other people, and as they go through difficulties, that we don't think, well, boy, they, they must have made a bad choice there somewhere. We've already talked about it. But let's talk about the, the, the second issue that I think is really important. And that is Paul's view of the future and Paul's view of planning. In this section, he's laid out his plans. He's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Then he's going to cut over to Macedonia. To sort of retrace his, his missionary journey, begin at Philippi, work his way down to Thessalonica, Berea, and then finally come down to Corinth and spend the winter there, and then he would go on from there. Paul writes it. It's here. This is scripture. But if you turn the page in your Bible and you go over to the next book, Second Corinthians chapter one, the first the last part of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, Paul did the exact opposite. Paul said, I don't want to come over and see you just for a little bit. I want to go up to Macedonia and come down, and then I can spend more time with you and spend the winter with you. In fact, what we're told in chapter 1, he did cut over from Ephesus to Corinth by ship and spent just a brief time there. But this brief visit was so traumatic, and it developed into such a major crisis in Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church, That according to some who know the scriptures, it took two more letters and two more visits by Titus to settle things down. And and Paul has to explain himself in 2 Corinthians. They're like, hey, in the other letter, you said you were going to spend winter with us. You said you were going to go to Macedonia. You were going to just come here for a little bit. And then what do you do? You come here for a little bit and then everything just blows up and you leave town. And Paul has to explain Why he did the things that he did. What we have in this section are Paul's plans. Plans which didn't happen. They did not come to fruition. And I'm struck by the fact that it's still a part of Scripture. Because it could have very easily been edited out. Don't include this because... The Apostle Paul says, here's my itinerary, guys. This Ephesus of Pentecost, Macedonia, spend the winter in Corinth, and then I am either go to Rome or go back to Jerusalem. And it doesn't happen. In our study in the book of James, James tells us that there is nothing wrong with making plans as such. But when we make plans, we need to take into account... Our ignorance of the future, we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Our frailty, James says our lives, we're just like a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. And our dependence on God, and therefore we say, if the Lord is willing, I will do this. And here Paul does in fact say, if the Lord permits. Circumstances change, sometimes our plans may change. But you know what? If we have no plans, we can't change our plans because there are no plans to change. We just sort of go with the flow. Here in the Apostle Paul, we see someone who, in fact, does have a vision of the future. He's not just sort of sitting on a log and letting the current take him. He has made very definite plans of what he wants to do in the future. But I think there is also a humility and a recognition that sometimes it doesn't work out. Particularly in the ancient world, you could get on a ship and the winds be against you, and you not get to where you're going. You could get sick and not get to where you're going. All sorts of things could happen, but Paul made plans. I think as human beings, making plans, setting goals, can be quite effective. It it, it can be a way for us to get things done. Our view of the future is not, well, whatever God wants, that's uh, whatever he wants, that's what's going to happen. I'm not going to make any plans. Because I don't know what the future is, I'm not going to make plans. Paul makes plans. He doesn't know the future, but he makes plans. And then when the circumstances arise, he changes his plans. The Corinthians, I think, did not seem able to understand this. There's nothing wrong with making plans, as I said, if we take into account our ignorance, our frailty, and our dependence. This time of the year, particularly this week, uh, reminds me of a 22-year-old some 29 years ago who came to Los Angeles at the call of a house church. I thought I would only be here for a short time, a year or two, maybe more, and then I would go on to be a missionary to the Philippines. I had plans, but God had other things in mind. Unfortunately, that caused me to think, well, Damon, maybe you shouldn't make plans because your plans don't seem to work out. Maybe it's better not to make plans. No, Paul makes plans, and if he has to, he changes them. That is to be our vision of the future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen a year from now. But I don't think the call of Christ to us is to say, "Well, I'm not going. To, I'm just going to sort of go with the flow." And here in this brief section at this last chapter of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul lets them know. I've got great opportunity, great opposition. I've made plans, but my plans may change because I don't know what the future holds. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that if the Apostle Paul were to come back and talk to us, we would really disagree with him about a lot of things, very practical things. We would be disturbed by the opposition that seemed to follow him wherever he went. Some might even ask if he was doing God's will or his own. Then I think we might be disturbed by his changing of plans. We might prefer if if he not say anything at all as to create some expectation that he would be there and then not show up. But may we learn from Paul that our circumstances do not dictate what is right and what is wrong. That they may in fact dictate the plans that we make. The changes that we have to make. I thank you for Paul's concern for the Corinthians in spite of the hostility from them that he was still willing to send Apollos. I thank you for Apollos who stood in solidarity with Paul. I thank you that after this letter there was in fact a reconciliation between Paul and the Corinthians. but It seemed that things got worse before they got better. I thank you that in your word we're not given an unreal picture where people never disagree, where everyone gets along. It tells us things as they happened with real people in real situations.